Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast, presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films, or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. <laughs> Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Maddie Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Filmography, a Consequence Podcast Network production. I'm Dominic Suzanne Mayer. I'm the film and TV editor at Consequence of Sound. I'm also the host of this show. And for this, the fifth and final episode of Filmography Tim Burton, our fourth season, I'd like to introduce my guests for this week. Hi, I'm uh, Michael Snedell. I'm one of the chairs of the Film Stage Show and a freelancer for uh, sites including the Film Stage and uh, The Spool. <gasps> that's my site. <laughs> and that's me. I'm Clint Worthington. I'm editor-in-chief of The Spool. And I'm also a senior writer for COS. Um, I do all kinds of things, perhaps too many. When you said... That's me. It directly made it sound like I am the spool. As though you were, yes, the spool. You were declaring yourself the one. The real spool was inside and... us all along. It's the friends we've made along the way. As a reminder, you can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you find your shows. We also, as always, want to thank Sadie and the Stark for their song Apocalypse. You can check out more of their recordings at soundcloud.com slash Sadie and the Stark. For this, our last episode of the season, we're taking a look at one of the things that people really heavily associate with Burton, despite the fact that the movie people might most associate with him in this realm is not actually his, but we'll get to that, Tim Burton and Stop Motion. And in that respect, we're going to be discussing 1988's Beetlejuice, 2005's Tim Burton's Corpse Bride... You have to do the whole title. It's the whole build title. They need you to remember whose it is, as though Corpse Bride does not give off that vibe in every possible sure. way. Tim Burton's not Henry Selleck's Corpse Bride. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We're also talking 2012's Frankenweenie, and maybe we'll talk about something else at the end of the first half. You'll see when you get there. And so the question I want to pose to the two of you to start us off is what you take away about the Tim Burton aesthetic, the Tim Burton style that we've talked about on every episode of the show in one form or another from the movies we're discussing today. Well, it's very interesting revisiting the animated works, whether directly or adjacent for Tim Burton, because I liken him a lot to uh, Wes Anderson in that his aesthetic is it feels natural. It feels so natural for animation that it almost feels like a bit of a work of literalism to like see him actually do animation. You know what I mean? Like when you see Wes Anderson doing fantastic Mr. Fox, I'm like, Oh, this makes sense. Perhaps a little too much sense. Cause like the appeal of his stuff is sort of applying an animation friendly eye to live action stuff. 
Um, so when you see Tim Burton's particularly like weird, you know, hot topics, favorite son kind of style to actual stop motion animation, it makes sense in this. It, it just feels like it, it, it's, or, it's organic, you know? I think likewise, it's really interesting, too, that I so rarely think of Tim Burton as a director at this point. Like, he's just such a, a monomaniacal dictator in the same way oh my God. that what we kind of approach, you know, Wes Anderson or even the James Camerons of the world. Like, mm-hmm. you you think about him so much in relation to production design and aesthetic, not necessarily in camera choice, but aesthetic in terms of of a a design palette (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know a a certain template that he's going to hopefully (laughs) innovate on that like it's so difficult for me to think of him as a a filmmaker so it's even strange when i'm reminded that you know he has writing credits he has directing (laughs) credits and as a director he has his own sensibility that is separate from his demented mind (laughs) Well, and and I think it's fun, too, because if you look at what we're discussing this week, you have the very beginning of his career, the middle of his career, which was a very transitional period for him in the early to mid aughts, and then something from the later period. We're sort of covering the whole arc today in some respects. Mm. And I think especially what you see is him continually trying to find ways to marry, you know, that very handmade sense of vision that a lot of his late 80s, early 90s work has, and bring that into different eras. I mean, in the case of these movies, you have Beetlejuice, which has some deliciously hokey-looking composite work going (laughs) on that is very purposeful and kind of charming in its way. And then you go to Corpse Bride, which is from this very early era of using DSLR cameras like yeah. back when they were a lot less nice than they are now. One thing I was reading about during the production of Corpse Ride is that they were committing it onto one gig flashcards. Oh, no. Because wow. 15 years ago, technology was very different, lest we forget. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you jump over to Frankenweenie, where you have all this modern compositing technology, and you can have something that looks much smoother and almost has like this kind of CGI fluidity to it while still being stop motion. Right. It is interesting. It's a good point you make about how each of the films we're going to be talking about in this episode sort of touch on one different era of Burton, Um, especially with Beetlejuice, which is, you know, technically has stop motion elements to it, but is like at the end of the day, still a live action picture. But like seeing the weird melding of that is very charming. And then, yeah, there's the weird middle stepchild version, like with Corpse Bride. And then like, then weirdly enough, I almost think paradoxically, Frankenweenie is one of his stronger works in his later period. So it's interesting to how how his live action stuff is sort of, you know, I ha- I hate to say it, but diminished over time. But it almost seems as though, um, you know, the the state of his animation at least is like has, he ends on like a high note at least until he does another one. Well, and in the case of Frankenweenie in particular, it seems like very much a comfort zone, and we'll touch more on that in a bit. Mm. But all of these movies, in their own way, seem to really be like addressing, you know, something that's a very comfortable niche for Burton, which is the outsider in these very diorama like worlds. Because especially you would go on after Beetlejuice to see with things like Edward Scissorhands in particular, and even a lot of the way he designs Gotham in Batman Returns, he's very interested in these gothic dollhouses of a sort. And this allows him to once again express that very yeah. literally. Yeah, th- these movies are kind of peak Burton in a way a lot of his other films kind of aren't. Like they're like in his live action work it tends to 
you know, he there are times when he gets to ground himself, whether by necessity or by design, like with, you know, Big Fish and that kind of stuff. I mean, and this is obviously in a comparative sense, but yeah, with like things like Beetlejuice's crazy underworld and Frankenweenie, um, it just feels like pure strain Burton in a way that some of his other films don't. I think that's almost, um, I, I don't want to get into criticism at first though but i i think that what's weird about this is that these three like very pure distillations that we're talking about are almost there is a certain almost asterisk that comes with them in the sense that i personally especially revisiting these like beetlejuice something that you know i haven't seen now in 10 years so that was mm-hmm. that was an interesting experience but in on that revisit, you become aware that it's very difficult to separate the parlor tricks from the actual understanding of it as as a narrative and, and things like that. And that's not a bad thing, but it, it is weird how it kind of goes back to what we're talking yeah. about. You know, when we talk about the, the SNL parody of Tim Burton, you can't cut any closer to the cloth than these three three films yeah i mean these and in in their own ways i mean one of them helped to define a lot of that look very early in his career Mm -hmm. and then the other two would go to form these mirror images along with a lot of his other work because i think you and one thing that's interesting about burton in a macro sense now that we're kind of at the end of several weeks of discussing him is that like you can see a lot of those early movies echo and ripple through the rest of his career and even the mid period stuff. And even some of the later stuff like Burton is always, you know, repurposing and if not like recycling necessarily, but definitely like tinkering and repurposing and reusing certain ideas and seeing how he can fit them into different places throughout his whole career. Right. And in the case of Frank and Weenie readapting previous works, you know, in a longer format, but we'll get to that. It's fascinating too, in terms of Frank and Weenie that, you know, just as just as we're literally, you know, the intro of Beetlejuice's miniatures and you don't realize it until we, you know, actually get to the final miniature, which is our main setting. Um, uh, Frank and Weenie likewise has that same I'm in the backyard, you know, uh, doing my own mad scientist. Like the the ways in which, again, that that echoes and, and ripples like it's not necessarily totally a bad a bad thing and I don't want to I don't want to simply end at you know Tim Burton has been making the same movie over and over cuz I think that's a super easy complaint that people make but I think that even the variations we see here it seems that he's very clearly riffing on his own persona. Oh, absolutely. And there there is a self-awareness that starts to come in especially in that like aughts middle period but We'll get there. And if we're going to jump right into discussion, I feel like, and the one I've been really excited to talk about for weeks now is 1988's Beetlejuice. (laughs) Boy, do you know how to pick up. Let me ask you something. Is this relationship really solid? Do I have a shot at her at all? Excuse me. Sure. Am I overstep my bounds? Just tell me. Come on. You know what's really beautiful about this? You two kids pick me. You didn't have to, but you pick me. It makes me want to kiss you guys. Come on. Come on. Give me one. Come on. Come on. All right, let's get down to business. You're right. I got a card around here somewhere. Here, here. Who do I have to kill? Here, hold that for me, would you? There. Whoa! Oh, there, you there you go. You don't have to kill anybody. Ah, possession. And in the case of Beetlejuice, you have Burton who 
After the success and somewhat the surprising success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, he was getting sent a lot of screenplays that he found really uninteresting. This, by comparison, had been kicking around Hollywood for a while. This is one of the better-known 80s screenplay stories as well, because Michael McDowell's original script was far darker than Burton's version of Beetlejuice, as rewritten by Warren Scarron eventually ended up being, even though they're both credited on the screenplay. Because McDowell's version had much more of the sinister, hellish elements to it. Scarron turned it into more of a deadpan bureaucracy and things like that. Mm-hmm. And Beetlejuice was turned from, you know, an outright murderer to more of a... Well, what what in 1988 might have been called an affable pervert, which is something we can unpack in our discussion here today. Yeah. And and then this ends up being a major breakout early year hit for Burton, and it's off to the races from here. And Keaton as well. Oh, man. Oh, yes. Oh, Keaton. Because if we, yeah, and, and I guess we should just jump straight into Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice, because one thing that's really interesting on reappraisal is how late Beetlejuice shows up into the movie as like a full-fledged character in the action. He's kind of like it was about 45 minutes. Yeah, it's mm. like it's kind of like the shark and jaws honestly <laughs> yeah. where there's these or like Hannibal Lecter and in Silence of the Lambs yes, where there's like only so yeah. much screen time but he just <laughs> fills up the space. Yeah, and 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 you have Keaton giving this demented kind of hillbilly mangy performance that is just so so memorable with only about like a like 25 minutes of cumulative screen time probably right yeah i know it's such a whirling dervish kind of like wild-eyed manic performance that's just impossible to like take your eyes off of i mean whether in all of his various forms like that first time you really see him when he's got the pot belly and they're on the astroturf it's just I mean, it's it's an extension of his natural kind of stand-up tendencies, because he was a stand-up before this, and he did just, like, comedies. And so this was sort of a transition into weirder and weirder stuff before he took, like, the big leap based on Burton to be a superhero, and that was what he was known for forever. But So it's nice to see, like, a proto-Keaton, if that makes sense. Like, just, just, just gnashing his teeth and, like, going just going full bug-eyed in a way that I feel like he only really has the luxury to do again now in shit like... I mean, I guess it's, like, ten years old, but, like, the other guys and uh, a bit in The Vulture, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's real, it's real, real great to see him in this. Yeah, he's almost like a rockabilly dirtbag type thing, <laughs> which is interesting, too, beyond, like, we'll talk about the outright perversion <laughs> of yeah. his character. But even beyond that, like, his character is someone we don't really see these days because it would... It's not even that it's not politically correct, but it is... Drawing on so many like class details and things like that, that it would immediately be seen as almost like uh, a poverty porn, you know, type angle. And and that was something I really didn't expect on this revisit. That that's very interesting Mm. because, yeah, there is like there is a little bit of coding going on. But the thing is, Burton, if nothing else, is firing in every direction because just as much as the film is repulsed by Beetlejuice. And I think there's something like very cool about how like on a tactile level disgusting he is. (laughs) I forgot that like half just gross. Like half. I forgot that like half his face is molded over. Like he's (laughs) he's just like a grotesque (laughs) physical creation. To be fair, that was just Michael Keaton before Proactive. <laughs> he was the first real success story. 
I, 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 the one thing that I love though is that, and and Burton would really go nuts with this in Edward Scissorhands a couple years later, but here you see the full formation of Tim Burton's career-long cynical streak about yuppies and suburban types and polite picket fence living. And unlike a lot of his targets, at least here, he has Catherine O'Hara and <laughs> at Collar the height Tug. of her powers. Jeffrey Jones. Well, Creek is on right now. Well, okay. <laughs> Perhaps I'm speaking too soon. But hers, she's on like a, para- a reverse parabola of like just rising again <laughs> sure. to greatness. Sure. But uh, yeah, no, she's great. <laughs> Winona Ryder is, it, this is sort of like the beginning or the real beginnings of her relationship with like her collaboration with Burton and we'll revisit her later too. Um, and yeah, and Bring Jeffrey Winona Jones. Ryder back to Hollywood. Like, come on. Yeah. She's shoplifted. <laughs> this is so stupid. <laughs> you would have thought Stranger Things would have done it somehow. Yeah. But here we are. Because you, know, well, you know what happened. The weird looks she gave at that winning that Emmy speech. That was what it was. <sighs> God like, almighty. Oh, I don't know about this writer. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, Jeffrey Jones. Glenn Shaddix is great in this. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I love that he like prods that kind of the the you know the redneck sensibility i suppose with beetlejuice but yeah. he hates yuppies and i love it yeah this movie actually what's really surprising is how beetlejuice is almost secondary in beetlejuice because mm-hmm. what beetlejuice actually is is a trojan horse for tim burton to make a movie about how much he hates other artists yeah. <laughs> and how much he hates land developers and how much he hates like modern there's actually something very modern for a movie made over 30 years ago yes. about like just people like oblivious white folks coming into a space, paving over all the land and making it as homogenous and dull as they possibly can. Mm-hmm. You know, and I mean, like, it's kind of fascinating too that Henry Belafonte's Banana Boat and Jump at the Line, then, you mm-hmm. know, who was back then faced a ton of racism for. Uh, sorry, a ton of racism for uh, even though white people liked his own music. Like, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's it's just fascinating that those are the two. Uh, you know, um, sorry, touchstones within the film, given its overall, you know, themes of gentrification as well as. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's very difficult to have a conversation about what the way Burton handles race, especially when he himself mm-hmm. has said on record that like Frank and weenie will have some stuff. Yeah. As well. mm-hmm. And he's, yeah. he's like said publicly that like certain people don't fit his aesthetic. Oh, and that is, yeah. and that is like, it's something I've chewed on a lot. And I think the Belafonte songs in Beetlejuice really drew it into effect because there's, there's a clear affection there and I don't want to yeah. entirely divorce it from its context. But there's also an obliviousness Mm -hmm. that, you know, like, again, we're talking about a very different era in which this movie came out. There would be capital letters, the takes today. Sure. But in any case, you get this version of anarchy that feels Mm. very old and kind of timeless in the same breath. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, there's certain parts of it that even reminded me of, like, the decline of civilization. Like, that certain sense of almost, like... Not delusional anarchy, but a, a, a not fully formed anarchy. Like a, one where you're not quite sure what you're fighting for, but you know you're fighting against something. And there is a nobility to it. Well, because if you think about what he's swinging at, I already mentioned, but, you know, everything from, you know, cubicle bureaucracy, which would become a huge narrative thrust in 90s filmmaking, to, you know, like his pet interests in like the occult as being charming, if you look at it the right way. 
Burton is very much spray gunning topics and styles here. And it's exciting because thanks to the fact that like this is at once lavishly designed and really a pretty small scale movie in context. Right. Because it's basically the house and also hell. And there's a bunch of really incredible stuff or purgatory. I'm sorry. My my Catholic upbringing is showing. (laughs) But leaked um, out a little. Yeah. Yeah. They showed, they showed me a scary place painted red. That means the bad man. That means hell. I remember stuff from church, kind of. And You know, if they gave me that handbook, I might still be a Catholic. So. Oh, yeah. Um, well, there's also, we've sort of been ignoring ostensibly the leads of the movie, too, which is uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, um, who are just like the most pleasant. I feel like this is, might be the nicest person Alec Baldwin's ever played. <laughs> Um, which is great, but, um, yeah, it's interesting to paint them as sort of the, the stewards of this more honest, um, depiction of this house in this neighborhood pre gentrification, considering they're the most lily white wonder bread people you could imagine, but there is an imagination and a curiosity there that I think Burton values in his protagonists that, uh, that makes you want to root for them. And so it's nice to see them. Well, I mean, it also, it, it hangs upon the central premise of like, what if a house was haunted by just these really nice people? Yeah, and and then you get both ends of it because you get these incredible flights of just grotesque post-death character design. Mm-hmm. And then you get like he shoots the house like it's uglier and scarier than anything in the world from the second they walk in. Yeah. There's something very fun about, you know, the yuppies being the malevolent spirits of the home. Right. Where you're a ghost movie where you're rooting for the ghosts, you know, I feel like that was the central, like that was the central novelty, the twist of the script, um, which was really, really cool. And yeah, like there's also just something wonderfully grotesque to go back to the creature designs about the ways in which these two ostensibly normal, attractive people contort their faces to you know scare off their their new occupants well yeah because large marge and peewee felt like a warm-up round for everything burton ends up <laughs> oh, doing yeah. here a lot of the time and even scenes like if you think back to peewee like the gurney trip through the clown hospital mm-hmm. a lot of those psychedelic visuals you know kind of planted seeds for him just going nuts in the sandbox here because I mean, the purgatory stuff—that's the; those are the things that I remembered about the movie, not having seen it in years, like distinctly shot for shot. Yeah, um, smoke coming out of Juno's neck. All just all of these touches that, again, if we're talking about the quintessential Burton feel, whimsy within Gothic, and within that, love and affection within renderings of the macabre. Yeah, exactly. Like even yeah. even at the end of the day, like with the Dietzes, like there is ultimately an affection for them at the end. Like they sort of learn their lesson, but they are allowed to live in this equilibrium within the house at the end when they the, the, I feel like that's ultimately Burton's statement of like, yeah, this shit is scary, but we can live within it and we can we can embrace it. We can embrace the weirdness and just, you know, float in the air and and sing Harry Belafonte songs with a dead football team. Let's I, just do it. I think similarly, it's really important to that we've kind of been we've talked a little bit about this, but that it's you know it's de- it's demented, but it's not transgressive. Like it, you know it, it. He does want you to. It normalizes this kind of spooky occult stuff for it, it kind of a more <laughs> mainstream audience, almost. It it, it does, and it, but he doesn't seem like he actively wants to 
necessarily do any more than you know send the kids to bed a little bit scared like he's yeah. not actually he's not trying to traumatize it. anyone yeah he's not Gaspar Noe of <laughs> of, of gothic god <laughs> Gaspar Noe's Beetlejuice I, I've who's, talked who's about Gaspar Noe way too much this year already but uh I, I guess that's what I really want to say is that sweetness if there was anything that stuck with me it it, it was that it was already the Harry Belafonte songs that we talked about and that banana pot scene which is my outright favorite but then even that last scene which weirdly enough um made me wonder why matilda wasn't directed by tim burton (laughs) because wow there's some same vibes there but yeah i just even in the darkest imagery there even the way i think of uh the way that they contort their faces towards the end Mm -hmm. and you know the last ditch effort to scare uh, Winona Ryder's character and their family away um, like that even the design of that is something that is tongue-in-cheek because we see it happen in real time and we see it it's not like it's cast in shadows or anything like that it's not a it's not a, a you know Hellraiser or anything and I think that's that's really important and it's what makes you as Clint was saying like normalizes these things that so could so easily be nightmares right and the conduit for both of those worlds too is is Winona Ryder's character um who I feel like this is essentially like the birth of that particular Burton archetype like I, what do we call her like this I, I call her the spooky girl um so yeah just like seeing that sort of the, the pale eyeliner sort of goth sure. sort of uh, you know affectless you know morose teen who nonetheless has a very sweet core and could be a really good person if someone paid attention to her and validated that that sense of the macabre that she's into and so like seeing those worlds sort of combined through her efforts and like having everything hinge on her you know weird gender politics of burton films aside um i think is really valuable and it's a it's an interesting touchstone here and thankfully i I mean again i don't want to make too much of gender politics because it absolutely needs to be remembered as dom said that this was a different time but like Nothing creepy happens to Nona Ryder's character. <laughs> Which is almost child marriage. Is full uh well okay. <laughs> I was just gonna jump in and mention that in original versions of the screenplay, oh, that no. in particular was a lot worse, probably in the exact way you think it is. Uh-oh. So Great. that's actually a good way to <laughs> discuss, at least in brief, you know, Beetlejuice as a movie that is like both playfully malevolent and sometimes not. Because, like, the whole, like, Randy Rogue is absolutely a comic relic of the 70s and 80s, and that character was huge in that time. Also, great wrestler name. Randy Rogue, God, yes. Yeah. Good Ozzy Osbourne uh, guitarist as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I but in the in the case of Beetlejuice it's and I guess this is a good way to discuss this with Burton at some point. You know, there's a weird gulf between, you know, like you don't want to give an outright pass to some of what he tries to do in certain movies because of the fact that there's like this childlike sense of naivete about it, but it is worth at least factoring in, but also it's rarely so apparent as it is throughout Beetlejuice because there's a body sexuality to a lot of Burton's work, right? Like mm-hmm. Edward Scissorhands mm-hmm. plays with this Batman returns is like one of the most erotic superhero movies ever made, if not the most. So, mm-hmm. so 
you know, this sort of, and even like Pee Wee has echoes of that. And they kind of play against like the ways in which like no one thinks of Pee Wee Herman as a sexual being. Well, Mm. Paul Rubens, I mean, now. (laughs) Well, we didn't then, Michael. (laughs) So so are we asking whether Pee Wee Herman fucks? I think Pee Wee's Big Holiday confirms that he does in fact fuck. I'm really glad <laughs> Netflix answered that long-standing yeah. question for yeah. us. I, wait, is it uh, what's his name from Magic Mike? Oh yeah, Joe Manganiello. Like there is an oh, explicit. Wow. There's an explicit crush on Joe Manganiello, which is great. Awesome. Moving I guess on. I need to watch that. <laughs> oh, it's it's actually remarkably delightful. But I think what's weird. So in the case of Beetlejuice, <laughs> no, it, it's totally fine. But I I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is to a certain extent, it is, a, it's a, it's a conversation all on its own about like how culpable we make Tim Burton for like his characters existing in this, you know, occult, gross sexual world, but with this naivete, like to what extent is that, you know, obliviousness or is it purposeful and to what end that kind of stuff. So yeah, I think like Beetlejuice is where it, it gets the weirdest. I think the other odd thing is that I think you could say for a lot of Tim Burton films that even as they're directly narratively set in a certain time period, there's a sense that they are always out of time in terms of morals. Like Mm -hmm. in the same way we'll talk about, uh, we'll just briefly say like in Corpse Bride, there is a, there are weddings in there that are morally sticky, but they are specifically taking place in past centuries and I and even Frankenweenie has an odd, uh, let alone that it's in black and white. But regardless, there's such an odd sense of era in all of these films. And so Beetlejuice, there is. It, I'm not saying it's not problematic, but in terms of Winona Ryder, she seems to be playing so clearly into this original uh, original bride archetype and and this very like classic idea of femininity you know being uh you know taken over by like a dominant male presence that some of that stuff like because it is so asexual in that one sense like i i think it kind of didn't go over my head but no yeah probably like nobody in this movie fucks except for beetlejuice who emphatically does Mm -hmm. he is even built a brothel in in miniature I had forgotten at one about point that by the, the way <laughs> oh right jesus the brothel but then contrast that with gina davis's character who like yes it's it's tough to say like it's a rather sexless marriage they have not just like even before they die there's but the kiss there, there's there's like there's Alec a kiss Baldwin also there's... looks like a handsome ken doll in this so like, yeah. that really puts no over that image yeah. yeah exactly but i mean like you know in terms of Gina Davis's character, I feel like she's comparatively self-sufficient, um, you know, not, I mean, they have a very equal, equitable relationship with no each other. No breast balls in this. Yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, they both, they both share the pants in the relationship. And um, so, like, in that respect, that ends up being a kind of aspirational, good, like, neutral ground on which to, like, lay that side of the conflict. And And that's, and it's nice to keep all of this in mind when you consider that, like, you know, these are our flights of fancy, and especially for one that's like informs so much of the modern pop cultural language. I'd argue this stuff is a value bringing up because, mm-hmm. like, these are the movies we kind of take for granted as just like informing the mass imagination. Yeah. So, 
And actually, if we're going to talk about, you know, like him, Burton playing around with anachronisms and especially Burton, like being able to now work within the kind of look he set up in Beetlejuice, we can then jump over to Corpse Bride. It really shouldn't be all that difficult. It's just a few simple vows. With this hand, I will take your wife. <laughs> no. With this hand, I will cup your... Oh, goodness, no. With this, with this, with this candle, I will... I will... I will set your mother on fire. Which, in the case of that, again, this is Burton actually directing his own stop motion for the first time since the Frankenweenie short in 1984. I don't know. This kind of seems more like a Mike Johnson joint to me. <laughs> There's always something you're going to see as a commonality with it. everything except for Beetlejuice here today yeah. is that there's always a co-director and there's always like something going on. Though Frankenweenie is very authored. But yeah. here, Tim Burton, even though the movie is literally titled Tim Burton's Corpse Bride, co-directs with Mike Johnson. Mm -hmm. And from what I've read of this... It was very much a group effort, to say the least, in as much as Burton was producing this and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory simultaneously. Mm -hmm. They were only released within like two or three months of each other. Oh, wow. And it's why they have a very similar color palette, especially like this is a phase when he was working in those like murky sort of ethereal blues pretty heavily. You see it in Sweeney Todd a couple years later as well. And in this case... You know, a lot of it seems like a lot of Burton's ideas were like less execution focused than ideation and storytelling focused mm -hmm. because there were dozens of people doing the actual puppetry. And these were also incredibly elaborate figurines, which is fascinating because all of it is in a service of a blessed a 75 minute movie that is both kind of charming and also feels in every way like a collection of b-sides yeah very true it's also very interesting to think about the timing of this particular movie too if we're gonna if we're going to weigh in on these films as sort of reflections of what burton is going through at that certain time uh this is 2005 this is like around the time that he sort of made the switch as ugly as that sounds from Lisa Marie to Helena Bonham Carter. So, um, having a movie, like having a movie about a guy who's sort of nervous about commitment and like, especially around two different women is sort of like, uh, weird to think about. I had read that and I did not make that one-to-one -one connection. <laughs> and yeah, that, that gives a different read to this otherwise, like, once again, playfully occult children's movie. Yeah. Because this, far more so than Beetlejuice, is like a family feature. Mm -hmm. I think it is weird, though. I'm going to extrapolate a little bit. I'm going to project a little bit sure. on that now story. Let's make this stranger than fiction. Um, I think that there's something even stranger than when you think about... That makes it... Uh, that gives another tint to this when you think about how long it takes to actually be resolved like the way this film is so strange to me that um it's not until the last like five or ten minutes that anything is actually undone that any like narrative actually uh you know um 
pushes forth and like causes an actual change. Like so much of it is just watching these dioramas and these tableaus and these B sides, like that, like that uh, music scene, which is like dazzling to a point, but also just you know signifying nothing. Yeah. And I mean I I it's very weird because the thing I definitely did not recall about this movie before I revisited it was that it's a musical as much as anything, but mm-hmm. it's also like kind of a musical in the way that La La Land is a musical where it's very like non-committal mm-hmm. about when it is and is not a musical. Mm-hmm. But it's it, it it is weird because if you think about like this especially in context of the circumstances of stop motion production because now like if Beetlejuice had those flourishes that we'll especially talk about more in the second half this is a fully stop motion animated feature and at that again you know this was in the early days of digital compositing as a means for stop motion which has kind of led to the whole modern revival of it in some corners mm. but in the case of Corpse Bride, like there's something that there seems to be a gap between what Burton's trying to do and kind of the jerkiness of the characters at times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the animation is not fluid in the way that like something like Nightmare Before Christmas feels fluid or like Frank and Weenie will feel fluid. Yeah, it still feels like they're figuring this whole thing out. And I think the animation sort of suffers for it. Yeah, I don't know. This this really this didn't one's do hard much to for get me. a grasp on. Oh. Like it's kind of so herky jerky with the animation and the the story. Like it's just it's hard to like it, dig it, into something. It's herky jerky, and it, it was also weird to me just how much it reminded me of other things. I don't know if either of you are familiar with uh, Double Fine, the gaming mm-hmm. company who did uh, they did Grim Fandango and oh yeah yeah yeah, which is then uh, <laughs> again there Tim Schafer is very much influenced by Tim Burton too. But it was just. I got this odd sense just over and over watching this that uh, that like I just felt like I was on autopilot and in a sense that I mm. wanted to be more engaged or involved with this thing on any way. And, you know, like there were little touches like there's some real nice sight gags in here. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm really impressed that they found a way to rhyme Nouveau Rich with something. But like <laughs> at the end of the day, like I just... Uh, I don't know what to make of this film and and how much of it it seems like a, a you know a really kind of mediocre facsimile of another film that people associate with Tim Burton. <laughs> well, yeah. and it's and it's funny too because going back to the your point about the storytelling Michael like I agree that it feels very unshaped a lot of the time because it does feel like a long form ramble on a singular idea. It feels more like a long form parable to your point, Clint about commitment phobia Mm -hmm. than much of a movie because it's really all just a riff on that one idea with a happy ending that kind of feels like it comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And is like semi unearned given the like murder revelation that engenders it. Yeah. Well, that's the thing to think to keep in mind. The she, he doesn't marry the corpse bride. The corpse bride is just a manic pixie dead girl to like teach Johnny Depp how to like marry his real love, who conspicuously shares a very similar name to him. Um, it's just very very strange, and I don't know I don't know how to like read the subtext of that other than it's just kind of disappointing. Like it feels weird to go on this entire journey with this whole other person and be like, no, you you need to like marry the person you were supposed. It's to It's like marry. the reverse. 
message of the ending of Nightmare Before Christmas, right? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. kind of the polar opposite take. Like, if there was another, like, not-stitched Sally in the picture who Jack right. Skellington ended with, uh-huh. like, that's basically what this feels like it's getting at beyond yeah. point. <laughs> the real thing is you need to not be yourself. Why don't you try that? <laughs> yeah. It is very weird to see. And, and, yeah. and again, if we're, like, talking about influences, it pulls from more than just that. Like, again, you have the same palette that he's working with with um charlie and the chocolate factory at the same time Mm -hmm. you have like it especially the scenes in like dreary victorian england reminded me a lot of his great outtake on sleepy hollow yeah there's you're seeing burton now like he has enough of an established look and especially with his entire 90s run kind of being a part of the cultural zeitgeist you now have like a burton who can start kind of again we'll say riffing yeah (laughs) But I, I will say the one thing that it does feel pretty different to me is uh, I think Depp actually finds an interesting middle ground between like sleepy and like I almost like how how not how unaffected he is by the world that he's in. And at first it kind of bothered me because I'm like, why are you not freaking out more about <laughs> being in this shitty place? But there's something. There's something unusual. He's just in a phone booth, in a in a voice booth, in his underwear. He's, he's doing fine. <laughs> I mean, compared to, I mean, so many of the, you know, again, the the parodies that we talk about Johnny Depp within, uh, the, this is really a different performance, and the same with Helena Bonham Carter, who is not really doing the vamping that we expect of her. Like, mm. you know, as much as we are talking about it as an also ran, there are some key things that do feel like uh pretty different. Yeah. And he's clearly trying to like work out some ideas here. Like this movie is never short on ideas or things to look at. Like, I think we really need to put a fine point on that because like, this is not a movie I'd call bad, even if I think it's kind of like, again, misshapen if anything, but he's definitely like in search of like a point around which to build all of those ideas beyond a point and, and and even like extending to like the musical facets of it other than because let let's be frank to an end this movie is also very much cashing in on what was becoming like the beginnings of the really avid cult following around nightmare before christmas mm-hmm. because this is 2005 sure. we now we now have like a store that we s- associate directly with mall goth as an aesthetic and, you know, this does at times, t- not to be cynical, feel like Burton very much like striking while that particular iron was hot. How is Avril Lavigne never in a Tim Burton movie? I mean, <laughs> she was basically like birthed into the it's, ether it's, it's, from it's, one. Sure. Michael, it's complicated. <laughs> I, you, I, I should throw you out of this room. I am appalled and I am shocked and dismayed. <laughs> but again, I and it, it, it's funny because I really I, I do agree with you, Michael. Like there are definitely things that work about this movie and that are admirable. I do think, if anything, it has like maybe one of the last like sweet seeming Johnny Depp performances. Yeah, because we're now like getting. I mean, just a, again, just a couple months earlier, you had his like alternately mean spirited and unsettling Lascivious. take on yeah. Willy Wonka. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. Like 
we were getting to a point post Jack Sparrow where Depp was pretty much being allowed to do anything he wanted to his increasing detriment. And here you kind of have this throwback to like the Depp of Edward Scissorhands, sure. the one that like Burton used as one of his most effective proxies earlier in his career a few times. Right. It is weird to hear Johnny Depp in like normal person mode because there are very there they're two very different performances. And in, in the other camp, it's a range of different performances. But uh yeah, this was closer to, like you said, sort of Sleepy Hollow, which is like a comparatively more grounded Johnny Depp, as weird as it is, playing a steampunk detective uh, investigating a headless horseman. But um, yeah, like it, it, it's a, it provides a nice contrast to the outsized stop motion visuals too, like to sort of contrast the the most alien type of Tim Burton filmmaking with the most grounded and normal, for lack of a better word, performances. I think the other, I'm realizing the other interesting thing is we're talking, you know, as we talk about Sleepy Hollow or Sweeney Todd or any of these two, I think that the almost like murder ballad quality of some of the, especially like bar scenes in this are somehow more effective than those films, even as they rely on a lot of gratuitous violence in order to get across the tone. Oh yeah, because it has, to draw a parallel back to Beetlejuice, it has that same sense of just like, what can we do to a body or what can we do to a skeleton? And like treating that morbid question as its own like sandbox to play in, you know? Right, right. I mean, and, and, and it like lest, lest we sidestep it, we're going to compare, make allusions to nightmare before Christmas. There's also the fact that like, you know, you had like a skeleton jazz band in that movie. The entire yeah. bar sequence is very reminiscent of like the vibe of the town square sequences in Nightmare Before Christmas. Right. And it's also interesting to see how that kind of those trappings fit in his works in like Victorian England, because it feels like Tim Burton, with the exception of certain planets that are occupied by certain apes, Tim Burton's movies always take place either realistically or sort of spiritually in the 50s or in Victorian England. Hmm. So it's fun to see like how he operates in Victorian England settings like in Corpse Bride and Sweeney Todd and sort of Sleepy Hollow a little bit, even though it's, fu- you know, that's fuzzy um, with like the 50 suburbia that he riffs on in his like modern works um, comparatively. Um, so in Corpse Bride, yeah, it's, it's real fun to like see him dive deep into the penny dreadful kind of, you know, macabre nature of it all. I, I think the one other, th- the one other thing I want to mention too, is I think, you know, speaking of Tim Burton as an actor's director, you know, in the case of this and Frankenweenie, I think he doesn't, you know, who knows what type of supervision he gave to voice recordings and things like that. But uh, in, in the case of like Catherine O'Hara or Albert Finney, like those are characters that don't go far enough and, and have this certain stiffness that I found, and I, I think I kind of found it in Frank and Weenie as well. So it is just very weird that he seems to have such facility over these things, yet other aspects suffer in comparison. Well, and to that point, I know um, at least with the, in the case of Corpse Bride, most of the dialogue was recorded separately in individual sessions and individual booths. So a lot of the time, like the lack of cohesion can just from, come from there. Like it, it's very hard to direct voice acting. Yeah. That's one thing that like people fundamentally often do not sure. understand is how hard it is to make a cast of people, most of whom are not in the same terrestrial space actually sound good together. Like mm-hmm. us just really spoiled me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Spoiled all of us. Yeah. Well, all of us have actually seen their shit. 
Well, and, and and one thing I will say, like, as a huge fan of Leica animation stuff, I mean, Burton, again, like, working with early DSLR still tech here, like, he kind of planted some seeds here that sure. they would then take off and turn into, like, far more interesting plants, not to be mean to it, but, yeah. like they would turn them into a fuller idea. This very much feels in some respects like a tech demo as well at times yeah. where like Burton is figuring out like what he can do within the boundaries of this tech. Or seeing how yeah. this works. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's not often you can, and I mean like directors do that. I mean, Avatar is the highest grossing example of that in movie history. Um, a lot of what Steven Soderbergh's done in recent years with iPhones as a mm, filmmaking method sure would speak to that as well. So it's kind of interesting just in that way too, to like watch Burton play with these new toys in public because there's a plays with these toys vibe to a lot of his movies in general. And it kind of fits in this case. Yeah, definitely. Was this a success? I I, I just wanted, I I didn't look. Let's find out box office. Um, it got like 118 million total. Um, (laughs) It was number. It, it opened to number two in its first weekend behind Flight Plan. Who, who remembers that one? <laughs> I do. Remember the lady vanishes on a plane. <laughs> that, that twist is real bad. Mm. <laughs> I can't believe we've somehow ended up talking about the Flight Plan in this year. Of oh, our everything War in comes back to Flight Plan for me. Do we want to, watch, to talk about a uh, Corky Romano too? Which Let's we talked about. Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> uh, just stop. Oh God! Too many deep cuts. I don't think I'm getting filmography. Back. No. <laughs> filmography. Well, I'll have you back for filmography, Corky Romano. Yeah, but mm. <laughs> there should, should just be a, a Sean Bean filmography where it's like every film that we divide him into ones where he dies or ones where he betrays somebody, and Flight Plan can be somewhere in there. <laughs> well, and you know, if we're talking about. <laughs> I'm wondering once, how you're going to get out of this. Once, at one point long ago in history now, we were talking about Tim Burton. And, and I think if we're looking at Corpse Bride as kind of this middle face, then that's an interesting point to jump over to 2012 and to Frankenweenie. Look, I don't know what you think I know, but I don't know it. Your dog is alive! That's impossible. I know, I know it is so impossible, but you did it, you did it! So show me how, or I'll tell everyone. Oh, Mrs. Frankenstein! So, in the case of Frankenweenie, Now, this was released in 3D, but is still in stop motion, but it also has some of that CG augmented smoothness that Corpse Bride definitely didn't have. If anything, in Corpse Bride, there's kind of a visible gap between him using CGI to populate certain environments and certain wide shots Mm -hmm. and the more tactile dolls he was working with. Frank and Weenie feels smoother in that respect because as a feature-length extrapolation of, again, his 1984 short that both, like, cemented the proto version of his aesthetic and got him fired from Disney funny enough. This does feel like a victory lap for him in some respects. This is also another tandem production. And I don't know why Burton would choose like 
a stop motion project as the thing he's always going to do while making another movie simultaneously. But this was released within months of Dark Shadows, which if if those of you listening at home remember from a few weeks ago, is this show's least favorite Burton movie. Frank and Weenie fares substantially better, not least because it actually feels like it has a soul to it. Right. And um, it's interesting because I didn't actually watch it until I watched it this morning for the podcast. And I think one of the reasons I didn't is because this actually came out around the same time as Paranorman. And so I felt like those two movies were kind of like a deep impact Armageddon kind of situation. So I picked Paranorman, which is a fantastic movie, but it allowed, but it made me overlook this one. So it was really nice to go back. Wait, which one's deep impact? Uh, Ooh, maybe this is deep impact <laughs> in that. Like, I think there's like merits, but I just still love Paranorman just still makes me cry every time. But, um, Frank and Weenie still has a, a, a significant amount of charm to it. And, um, yeah, it just feels like it feels like, like him going back to his roots in so many different ways. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I'm going to relate it to Joe Dante, but not the obvious movie you're thinking of. Um, instead, I'm going to relate it to Matinee, which which is his uh-huh. film all all about movie making and the magic of movie making. And I think that as a feature length, you know, remix of Franken of the Frankenstein story, um, going back to James Whale's version, like this is. This is like really a, a love letter, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's a double edged sword because I, on one hand it's it's a really good approximation of a lot of the monster movie qualities of the of the uh, reverence to that story and especially the lo fi mad scientist quality is something I, I really like in here, but I also think that. Other than one or two surprises, it almost cues too close to what you expect when chaos really ensues. Like, I, this is a really weird one to bring up, but I can't help but think of a part in a porta potty. And I kept it staged in a way where you expect something really strange is going to happen. Um, and on paper, <laughs> it's a strange scene. But it was also, I was so disappointed when it actually happened. And I think that. He does such a good job with building this story up, and despite it being just a little bit too undercooked for mm-hmm. my taste, but he does such a good job in just kind of realizing, oh, we're doing this whole story, uh-huh. but then it just, it just kind of, it kind of limps to the end a little bit for me at the end, and especially there's, especially the end, which I thought was going to do something incredibly risky, and kind of decides not to uh which we'll we'll get to but um yeah i i I like this one but again it falls into this odd thing of him going back to his old toys and him going back to his pet themes in a way that you know doesn't feel as wildly as exciting as you know like someone like a de palma or something like that's a (laughs) that's an odd characterization but you know the more we talk about it the more i realize there are some similarities between some of these directors who like, you know, just variations on their own ideas. Well, and going back to, you know, this being evidence of his love of filmmaking, like this also reminded me a lot of Ed Wood, especially in the beginning, like, because there's obviously, I mean, it's obviously a play on the Frankenstein story, but there's also so much in there. He's go, he's back in 50s suburbia um, to the era of the cheap monster movie. And of course this is like a, it's, 
you know, going back to the sort of herky jerky nature of everything else, like this is a Frankenstein movie that becomes a Godzilla movie at the end, <laughs> uh, or perhaps more accurately, a Gamera movie, uh, because uh, the villain is is friend to all children. Um, so, but you know, seeing in, seeing the way that sort of melds together, it's it's an interesting way to see him pull together all of his old early influences. Like the movie begins with the main character making a stop motion movie sure. in a much similar way as Tim Burton made the original Frank and Weenie short, like that kind of, uh, you know, that love letter to creativity and the love that, 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 you know, births it, I suppose. I really like that because in the case of stop motion, you know, I think a big part of the appeal of it just as a medium is like both this childlike quality, like this kind of doll, like playing with your toys kind of quality it has. But also because there's something very, like, homespun. Like, that that's a feel that it gives off. No matter how elaborate of a film you're making or how lavish of a story you're telling within that, it feels handmade in a way that's sometimes hard to convey on film, even though all film is handmade, you know? Right. There's a bespoke nature to it that I feel, you know, sometimes is missing in a lot of other stuff. Even, even as sort of filmed by committee as a lot of major stuff is, even if it looks, even if it's stop motion. But yeah, like with with Frank and Weenie, it does you know it's it's messier, but it feels more personal. It feels like Burton going back to like a more genuine expression of his own childlike desire to express, and sort of these there's sort of these orthodoxies that are in place. Like there's the there's the conversation with his dad about like holding the surf and turf about like you know you want to go do science stuff, but I want you to go you know play a sport and trying to find ways for like like having this like sort of you know boring ordinary society trying to like put him in this box which is very funny because that felt like kind of a subversion when burton first got started and Mm. then by 2012 you know like quote-unquote alt culture had become its own kind of monoculture unto itself right so it's very interesting to see those ideas translate from one era to a very different era yeah exactly and so i and i don't super know if burton has changed enough with the times for it to be a subversion on that subversion but yeah it is weird though because i think those parents are almost notable even in the realm of family films because they are like or maybe it's more that what they could be, he doesn't go for. Like the Catherine O'Hara character isn't, you know, a Stepford mom or anything. If anything, she's very much um, is aware that Victor doesn't have friends, but is also, you know, is okay with Sparky being the best friend and recognizes the importance of that relationship. Well, and you go back to something like Edward Scissorhands, of which there is a lot of DNA in Frank and Weenie. Um, and particularly in the way that he treats Diane Weist in that movie, you know, mm. there's a parallel there to here, I think, in the way of like this loving motherly figure who accepts the kid unconditionally. Even the father comes around in the end and eventually the town does too, which is a much more optimistic way for Burton to play the story than I think he might once have. Mm-hmm. Like, I do think it, it has a very Disney wrap up. For as much as it feels like an authored Tim Burton project a lot of the time, you know, like there are notes of optimism here that he doesn't always chase in terms of like what happens to our misfits culturally. Yeah, exactly. And then, but yeah, at the same time, I do feel like there is a fundamental affection for these characters. I mean, you know, if you consider Sparky as, you know, the metaphorical 
manifestation of a creative work, for instance. Like, he's not going to want to let that darling die. Like, it'll go through a lot, but he does want it to survive and thrive at the end. And he wants other others to accept it and respect it. I think it's just a little bit weird because I... When you, if we're talking explicitly about that scene, you know, you have the whole town coming together mm. and, and wanting to help and everything. And I think that it's it's interesting that you're talking about the bespoke quality because I went back and forth about feeling that this was shoddy and feeling that it was, mm-hmm. that it did have that great sense of invention. Mm-hmm. And I do think aesthetically it has that great sense of invention, but I also feel like a number of characters are a means to an end, especially when you're talking about the classmates Yeah, that's and, and you're talking about the, the ways that the third act goes like, or, or even the ways that some characters you, you think they had uh, a heel turn or, Oh shit! What is the opposite of a heel turn? <laughs> Going from face, <laughs> face turn. turn. Yeah. Thank you, face turn. Those things felt very artificial to me. Throughout Burton's whole career, he's always, you know, he's had his focuses and he's had like the people and like you always know which characters in a Tim Burton movie are actually of interest to Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. He is always wholly transparent about that. Who's a device and who's exactly Batman's right. a really funny example of that because mm. there are a lot of characters who show up in that movie as devices and little else. But I think in the case of Frank and Weenie, like it does feel shambolic a lot of the time, mm-hmm. much like, um, especially like if the pacing is, I would say tighter than Corpse Brides. It's also a lot more manic. Yeah. yeah. Like this, it, this has a lot more going on. This is very much, you know, like Burton drawing your attention to all the bells and whistles in the way that he did with stuff like Pee Wee. And that, if anything, is a very modern Burton tendency, too. Yeah. I mean, we're coming off like not great points of comparison, but with both Alice in Wonderland and with Dark Shadows again, just a few months before this came out. You have that same tendency to jump from rock to rock to rock very rapidly. Right. And also some of that feels like a consequence of adapting a short film to a full length thing, too. Sure. I mean, as much as like, you know, this is effectively, you know, an entirely different story with the same basic premise. What if you brought your dog back to life? But um I do think that tends to happen more often than not when you start it with a smaller, shorter idea and you want to stretch it out to 90 minutes. And especially when it just ends up turning into Frankenstein, which almost feels like like a thrown up hands sort of thing. Yeah, right. Like, well, we have to bring this home somehow. So it's it's just full tilt Frankenstein at feature length. Right. But I guess one thing that did interest me in the middle part of the movie is like sort of if if again we're we're treating you know victor frankenstein's powers as like the power of creation and he starts this he starts this technology and then suddenly everyone else wants to get in on it and they then express their own wills and whimsy and all that onto their own respective creatures i found that a really interesting parallel to like you know seeing what the creative tools can result in depending on who's holding them Well, and not only that, but just this idea that everything chaotic that happens is usually born out of, like, a well-meaning sense of, like, loneliness or loss. Right. Yeah, even this version of Igor is is odd in the sense that any sense of malevolence is almost gone after that first time he He blackmails blackmails Victor. Right, exactly. Well, because, you know, it's also, it feels malicious in the way kids tend to be, I guess. Not to call, like... Hmm. 
not to call Edgar Gore, um, you know, a realistic child by any means, but like, I don't know. I found, I found something sort of relatable in the, in the dynamics of, of a lot of the kids, like where it is sort of a collection of weirdos. Um, but they're all weird weirdos that are alternatively, um, hanging out with and pitted against one another. Where are we that everybody cares about the science fair? <laughs> That's an excellent That's but, a good but, question. But, but here's the thing. If we're going to talk about like the homespun qualities of the animation, you know, like this idea of like a brick by brick school where the whole town circles around the science fair. That's uh, as a opposed very, to baseball. <laughs> that's like, yeah. an, but it also feels like very old Americana in its yeah. own way. Like if yeah. this is all like Tim Burton doing like the wish fulfillment of his one time younger self, then mm. a lot of it is just that like living in a world where your parents are eminently supportive and the whole town is interested in the weird tinkery shit you're into. Like that's kid fantasy more than anything to want to live it in a world where the things you're immersed in matter just as much to everyone else. Right. And again, this is also for presuming this does take place in the fifties. Like this, this is a very atomic age kind of thing. So like yeah. there would be a grander sort of like, yeah, it'll be nerds, but like imagine winning the science fair and how cool that would be. I don't know. Um, and, and then again, it's sort of, the the weird fantasy world of Frank and Weenie, but like, yeah, I did appreciate that um, he set this world of creatives in a world that values creation, at least like in a roundabout way. And it's very funny to watch Disney bankroll all these movies. There's even aspects <laughs> of this in his take on Dumbo very recently, yeah, yeah, where they're talking about the joys and importance of like pushing boundaries and going against the grain and generating innovation and then creating this like disney straw man like a big conglomerate that gobbles up the little guy and even has its own fucking magic kingdom like it's it's wild it's yeah. a mess Dumbo's but nuts I, the more i think about it yeah but, wild yeah but you know but worth it for colin farrell in a clown outfit <laughs> at least for that one little image for for the better part of an hour at this point, we've been discussing stop motion Burton and the way in which like it's been informed by his style over the years. And I feel like so I have to say two things. One, we're going to take some time to talk about the nightmare before Christmas Two, he did not direct that movie. Henry <laughs> Selleck directed the nightmare before Christmas. And we have to keep saying that because with every passing year, people become more and more convinced it's Tim Burton's movie because they put it on the poster and he wasn't even co-director. It just came from a poem of his. And if you want to believe Selleck, um, apparently Burton was like limited in his actual, like on set, real life involvement throughout production right if you believe that tim burton directed the nightmare before christmas then you probably think that james cameron directed every episode of dark angel <laughs> <laughs> if you remember that i was gonna say flight plan dark angel we're playing a very weird game of this bingo is, here yeah. on filmography this week i love it but Only yeah i you know it's hard because there's there feels like there's so little left to say about the nightmare before Christmas for as profoundly inventive a film as it is just because at this point again nightmare before Christmas specifically has become its own fandom there's a really embarrassing famous blink 182 lyric derived from this movie <laughs> the cultural imprint for a movie that was like a sleeper hit but not a smash success in its own time has been substantial yeah VHS so was 
Matrix. was very <laughs> yeah vhs was very kind to the nightmare before christmas because i think uh, uh, who here grew up with a vhs of nightmare before christmas Hand or up here, yeah. on some kind of physical media like so that was how i experienced it and i feel like it was it was the thing that like you if you were too cool for christmas movies like that was what you put on and like so it, we uh, so many of us an entire generation has grown up with the nightmare before christmas and it feels like shame that it wasn't reflected in like the, the box office well, and and it's so. First of all, it's funny that you define Nightmare Before Christmas as like a gateway drug to becoming one of those diehard is actually a Christmas movie people. Oh, fuck yes! But <laughs> I, but I think like a lot of the enduring peel comes from the fact that you can definitely tell that like when especially when this project came together, Burton was working on the Batman movies during this time, and particular like Batman Returns came out the year before this film. And they both have a a similarly dreary take on the holidays that also still retains some of what intrinsically makes that time of year feel magical and distinct. Mm -hmm. And it feels by far like of these stop motion movies and movies with stop motion elements we've discussed so far, it feels the most painterly. Yeah, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And it's really intricately rendered. And I, I, yeah, there, there are images in that that still stick with me like you know jack skellington against that moon you know um yeah it's just it's a really beautiful piece of work and so it's it almost feels weird that for something that he didn't direct so much of his so much of his future works almost feels sometimes like it's trying to live up to that like the vibe almost yeah a little bit the aura like henry Selick told told tim burton how he should be making his movies and tim burton's been spent spent the last like 25 years trying to replicate that this is his this is tim burton's yesterday yes (laughs) oh no no yeah it's this is i I can't believe i have to say this but like i rewatched this movie this this Night Before Christmas is really good. It's like, so it's, good, you guys. It's very, <laughs> I was it's, really surprised. It's top to bottom a very, very good movie. Yeah. And like, yeah, like just from from every frame is just like suffused with a sense of like melancholy and like care that I... It that evokes, kids understand, ah, Yeah, too. It yes. evokes a kind of mood that is very hard to do even in really good animation. Yeah. A yeah. lot of great animated movies do not have, like, the authored kind of mood and feel that this does. Yeah. Right. It, it hits that sweet spot between, like, complexity, emotional complexity and emotional accessibility yeah. that, yeah. like, the best kids' movies can accomplish. Uh, immersive, with, but also feels effortless. It, like, it, yeah, lets, it lets kids key into emotions and feelings and just attitudes that they may themselves not be aware of yet but can clock into it and know that it feels yeah. different yeah tim burton great job man You're right this, <laughs> bravo bravo well, and honestly it, because you see so many of the hallmarks emerge here and and again he had played with these wintry aesthetics i mean he plays with gothic christmas and edward scissorhands now yeah. that i consider it as well and i really really feel like with all of with that entire look, that might be the thing, now that I'm sitting here playing this out, that we really think of as the Burton look. Because the yeah. whole season of the show, we've been sort of playing with different permutations of what that is and what defines it. But I feel like Nightmare Before Christmas feels like at once kind of a culmination. And as you pointed out, Clint, like the Rosetta Stone for where a lot of his career would go. Right. And it also feels weird to think that Tim Burton didn't direct it because going back to our earlier discussion of Frankenweenie, there's also very similar thematic ideas about creation and about 
about building something and about, you know, just understanding what you're creating and having a community rally around it. And sometimes the ethics of that too, like the, the, the ethics of like appropriating someone else's cult. Is this a movie about cultural appropriation? You guys, it, it sort of is honestly, <laughs> a little and bit. also engages in it through the Oogie Boogie man like, in turn. Yeah. Like, like talk about complexity is Jack Skellington, American Eagle Outfitters. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is fascinating too that even just thinking about the comparison between Nightmare and Frankenweenie Frank is that like Burton almost like Burton calls attention to his constructions. Like he, I, I yeah. even think of like Martin Landau's, you know, berserk like crooked piano teeth teacher. Yeah, like he's there and then he's gone. But you're you're very much aware of that. And Night Before Christmas, everything's just so in, enmeshed, which is in part probably because of the production as mm-hmm. well, that it, it needs to be as direct as possible. But, it, like, you're not aware of those individual plot details. Well, well, Burton revels in that, like, and, and even wants to show you behind the curtains. Like, I'm even thinking about in Beetlejuice, some of the purgatory, the way that they're just going in that hallway, and it's just absolutely cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Like, it's yeah. just, like, it's so... It's so very much wants to be elusive or or, uh, elusive, like a a elusive, not elusive. elusive. Um, Yeah, thank you. Um, (laughs) That that maybe that's not as much of a a problem. We're not totally making that out to be derogatory when we're talking about him being a little bit of a, a. I was gonna say ripoff artist, but that seems really unkind. (laughs) But. He remixes. Yes. He's, he's, it's a reimagination. Yes. Um, the Greg Gillis of <laughs> yeah, stop sure, motion. Sure. <laughs> um, well, and just to think about, you know, for as much as this series has been discussing all these different imaginative worlds that Tim Burton has created, weirdly enough, Nightmare Before Christmas is maybe one of the most fully realized. Like, think about the way that the world of all these holiday towns work and this weird fragile alliance they have and all these rules that they all have in each other. I want to see the rest, by the way. I want to see the rest. I want to see fucking Easter World. I want to know what that's about. It does a really good job of doing what, like, some people love in movies and some people find really grating, especially in, like, the YouTube era where everyone wants like movies hyper explained and everything to have purpose nightmare before Christmas lets you wonder at the peripheries of this world in a way that is really lovely. What does the door to the Arbor day world look like? That's a question. Is it just, is it just a tree? It's just a tree. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good question. Does every holiday, no matter how minor get, uh, get its own world. It's weird. I mean, I know there's like a roast beef day, so that'd be quite yeah, a door. Right. Oh, God. Does National Talk Like a Pirate Day have its own world? No, no one would want to hang out there. No, no What's one would. What's 20 world like us? Yeah. <laughs> We're, we are pulling at threads we should not no. be. No. <laughs> and bereft of any better segue, I want to keep that in mind as we sort of move over to our discussion of technical elements, because if we're going to talk the look of these movies, then like the medium is definitely the thing. One in two women wear the wrong foundation. Which one are you? Get on the better looking side of those odds with Il Maquillage. Using AI, Il Maquillage virtually shade matches you to the perfect foundation. Their foundation has over 50,000 five-star reviews thanks to its luxe lightweight formula. And with 50 shades, there's a flawless finish for everyone. Take the Power Match quiz to find yours at ilmaquillage.com quiz. 
That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. And if we're talking sight and the more visual aspects, in that respect, I want to stay on Nightmare Before Christmas, if only for a second, because again, like, not Tim Burton. Like, yeah. have to insist that over <laughs> and over stress that enough. out of a sense of obligation. But um, you do have some of these beautiful, beautiful tableaus. And that's the thing with stop motion in general. It does allow you to stage these tableaus because you can pretty much achieve any kind of distance from subject you want in a way that you cannot do in any other kind of filmmaking, arguably. Right. It's absolutely Gorgeous. And yeah, the, the the construction of the tableaus and even just against the the worlds that these crazy creature designs inhabit. Like imagine achieving something as literally skeletal as Jack Skellington, like those long spindly spider like limbs, you know, in, in a way that, that you can mo- you can move and motivate and construct um, so many awesome images. Like there's a reason that walk up the hill against the full moon is so um striking and evocative is because he's so thin that like if you were to pull the focus a little bit you would probably lose him um i think that that kind of stuff is so there's a there's a delicacy there's a there's a delicateness there's a fragility to a lot of those images it's really really cool i think it's fascinating too in in relation when you think about modern um uh, stop motion like we've we've talked a tiny bit about Leica or you know g kids who's doing a lot of innovative stuff in in that area as well and you know it's it's fascinating how in those cases they often stay away from the fluidity like they don't want to look like you know the nightmare before christmas or even or even ardman like all of those those are so um intentionally uh brusque and and you know are so harsh so it it is really fascinating how revisiting these films that there is something um not not safe but uh, again very like it's not going to put you off in terms of animation or it doesn't really require acclimation well because with stop motion you know there's kind of only two ways you can go with it it's either hyper reality or like drawing very clear attention to like the 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 physically manufactured artifice of it right it's it's very hard to find a middle ground between those points because the minute you start drawing at the audience's again direct eye and direct attention to it you're going to start seeing like you're going to ask the audience to start picking it apart. And in some of these movies, you can see it better than others. I mean, even jumping over to Corpse Bride a little in conversation with this, there's something very different about Corpse Bride that feels a little more like stutter start. The movements feel sharper than in Nightmare or as he'd go on to do with Frank and Weenie. And as we have already acknowledged up front, some of that is technological, but to both of your points, if you're going to ask your audience to engage in that way, you're going to draw their attention to it. And that's just a matter of whether that's deliberate. Right. And one cool thing about the character design for all four of these movies is that there's the malleability of all these characters too. Like in nightmare, especially so many of the characters are transformative or like you see, you literally see the seams in the character (laughs) creation where some of them can be pulled apart and put back together again. Like the Frankenweenie Sally, you know, Oogie Boogie, like he's just a burlap sack full of bugs, um, that kind of stuff. And even, you know, corpse bride, there is all the, the, the playfulness with the skeletal creature designs and everything. Um, it's, it's so, so cool to see him lean into the mechanics and like of what you can do with bodies 
And even going back to like the days of Pee Wee and especially Beetlejuice, you know, he's very interested in treating the human body then as its own kind of mechanical thing that you can like dissect and rip up and take apart. Like there's that funny little one liner where Winona Ryder's grossed out by the idea of dissecting a frog. And yet Burton spends basically the entire film doing that with his leads. Yeah. Basically like pulling their jaws apart and like, you know, the movie ends with shrinking Beetlejuice's head. Like, yeah, you can do all, all kinds of cool shit with with your with your characters when you take that approach. Yeah, I, th- I think too that whether it's stop motion or whether it's stop motion in an animated film or Beetlejuice, like you have, you are constantly, you know, drawing attention to it in every possible way. Whether in dialogue, whether you think of the person who's you know roadkill and he's like, you know, I, I don't have a mirror here. How do I look like mm-hmm. like that type of thing? So. Yeah, and and it marries that kind of mordant sense of humor then with his knack for character design, which say what you will for Burton, but his whole career he's had a really great eye for character design, and that mm-hmm. extends to his actors even. I mean, he's worked with Colleen Atwood on a ton of his films as far as costuming goes. I mean, he's always had an eye for look above all things. I mean, he's very much a visual first filmmaker. And in these movies, I, I mean, especially like... What I find great is how he draws your attention in some very different ways. Like Beetlejuice in particular, I mentioned this towards the very beginning of our discussion, but Beetlejuice really wants to draw your attention to like the contradictions in like compositing and layers. Like <laughs> there's something that almost looks kind of deliberately Ed Woody about it. Yeah. And yeah. he plays with that idea again in Mars Attacks, which we talked about in the last episode. But here you know, there's this really great juxtaposition where you'll have like Keaton sitting there or Gina Davis sitting there interacting with these stop motion beings mm-hmm. or being sent out into like the infinite sandworm desert, <laughs> yeah. which those things are built out of those things are pure nightmare fuel to this day. A question they, is Beetlejuice the best Dune adaptation so far? <laughs> Leave poor David Lynch alone, man. No. He tried so hard. Lynch is yes. easily going to be better than Denny V. Come on, let's be oh, honest. I don't know. I mean, is, it's got it's got, it's got baby villain... Timmy, got baby Timmy C. I don't care. Well, the Villeneuve version also isn't going to have Sting, so check in May. Yeah, fine. But <laughs> but to Sandworms, I I do think like. When Burton is playing around with repulsion in the stop motion format, that's also very interesting because Mm -hmm. he does it with Beetlejuice. He does it with aspects of um, he really does it with all four, because even in Frankenween, you know, I'm thinking about it. You get the morbid gag of him trying to lap up water and then immediately leaking it all over the floor or the tail. Yeah. The tail wagging. Both of which are very Beetlejuice gags now that I'm thinking on it. Exactly. And but and again, like like you said, I think the stop motion part of it helps keep it grounded in a sense of like just outside the bounds of horror in terms of like it's never meant to horrify you but it is meant to entertain and engage you and in terms you're supposed to just point out the disconnect it's it's meant to like get that kind of like laughing shock you get when you go to a um haunted house right but you're not like legitimately creeped out like yeah it never goes that far exactly it's like a really playful haunted house right it's not a haunted house where they have a chainsaw and are running after you you know god no (laughs) right it's the kind of haunted house where they just have like some like peeled grapes and you're supposed to like put your hand in oh it's eyes (laughs) well and like if if one of burton's driving motifs through his entire career is like 
love for the things that everyone else finds spooky or off-putting at a glance. Mm. Stop motion is a really good way to attack that because again you're 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 showing off the tinkering, you're showing off the playing with the toys. And as much as anything, especially like if you take Frank and Weenie as sort of like an in like a long form indication of Burton's approach to filmmaking, he just he wants you to know how excited he is to play with these toys, right? And a lot of and and in a lot of his best movies, they kind of exude that, right? There's a glee in a lot of the stuff, even the more flawed entries in these in this stop motion category, um, towards playing with those toys. Like it still feels like he's having a he's having a blast, and the question is whether or not is how far on the ride are you. To overlook kind of the the weird pacing sometimes and the the uh, you know off kilter plotting of something like Corpse Bride, I, I think one thing that should be said too is you know for whatever we say about character design, I, I think the one really crackerjack sequence he gets is actually that Paranorman dog and cat chase. Yeah, that's that was even more so than the climax. That was the one where I was you know. I was kind of on board, and then that happened, and I was completely into it. And, and I felt like I wasn't, you know, looking at the time or, you know, it well, it had a reckless abandon that was in the best parts of Beetlejuice as well. Yeah, because it feels like they're sort of approximating that tonal bounce and actually managing to translate it on screen. And yeah. and I mean, also, too, you know, the vampire cat and Frankenweenie is like <laughs> one of his great pieces of character design because there's a lot of great character design in all the movies we're discussing today. Mm-hmm. And Frankenweenie, so much of it is built around that core design with Sparky that some of the most fun I had with it was just seeing what everyone's dead childhood pets turned into. Sure. The best gag. Yes, the best gag in that that movie by a country mile is Colossus just getting squished. (laughs) Because you're just, you're waiting, you're waiting for anything to happen with just this repulsive looking taped together gerbil and then no, (laughs) absolutely not. But again, like, and it goes back, Clint, to your point about, like, playful repulsion, too, Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, you're meant to be grossed out by by these things, but more of in an, oh, ew, kind of way, you know? Right. It's that kind of, yeah, like like a freak show. It's just like an old school, there's always a carnivalesque nature to a lot of Tim Burton's tone, and I think this, like... This feels the most sort of step right up kind of school of his filmmaking yeah. where you're going in and watching, looking at like, you know, the proof of alien life or whatever. And it's like a cow <laughs> fetus, you know, yeah. or the sea monkeys. Yeah, the sea monkeys, you know, this is the kind of sea monkey approach. Well, and it's also fascinating how he manages to translate some of his visual hallmarks into animation over the years, because, I mean, Beetlejuice taken as a template for that, you know, like the way that he designs the stop motion creatures and especially the way that he integrates them feels very of a piece with the way he would then like match like the CGI of Mars attacks with human characters. Like he's very interested in like immersing his actors in as much nonsense at any given time as possible. But what's really cool is when he can translate it into something like corpse bride or Frankenweenie then where, you know, like, Frankenweenie has some of that same like really lovely black and white lighting that Ed Wood does Mm -hmm. and Corpse Bride again has that bluish hue that he was working in as a milieu during that period like it's very interesting seeing him marry a lot of his visual hallmarks to an animation space right and like you said sort of keeping it grounded in where he's at as a filmmaker at that particular time still being able to chart where he's at depending on like how it looks 
I kind of like the the deadpan absurdity of Frankenweenie of the psych gag of him with the bottles on his back and then he falls off the roof. <laughs> the, the, the sorry, the classmate. And uh, it does and they do kind of play it like he's going to fall on his mom or something. Yeah, right. But, but they didn't do it, but I like how just the the shot is so matter of fact and it's that it's that same it's that same thing where oh look at this gross thing but it's also you know, you don't actually have to feel that pain. You can also laugh at yeah. it. And and it's weird because then you have like again that morbid physicality married with, you know, the the relatively low stakes, I would argue low threat feel of stop motion yeah. as a medium. Like I mm. and don't get me wrong, there are stop motion films capable of like a very real sense of like danger and gravity. But aside from Beetlejuice, he never truly seems to pursue that. No. I mean, like, Jack Skellington gets shot out the sky, but it doesn't seem like the end of the world. I mean, Beetlejuice is the only time where it's really weaponized for menace, and that's another very deliberate choice in its own way. The Oogie Boogie, the Oogie Boogie scene is the one yeah, exception I would now say. that I'm that, thinking about yeah. it. Just watching that, I was like... Are they going to just kill a character? Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's it's always very, very. So, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, but... it's no. That's actually a really valid reminder <laughs> yeah, because yeah. now, now I'm thinking like, and it's wild that I haven't. Oh God, you know, I can still hear even now, and I watched this the better part of a week ago. And I can still hear that sound design of like the pile <laughs> oh, of bugs cascading yeah. down. It's, again, there's like a squicky quality to it that is, again, like more playful and more appealing, I think, Mm -hmm. than, um, you know, what a lot of these could be. And I think in that way he uses, he uses like the intrinsic look of stop motion really well in terms of like bringing it into his own house style. Right. And for fear of not just talking about the stop motion elements of these movies, because we still have half a movie that is live action that we're talking about. The look of Beetlejuice is also very interesting, like especially with the production design. Like we mentioned before that, that, that wonderful scene where they shrink down into the model and they meet Beetlejuice for the first time. And these, it's these live action actors, like, but they're in this grass that is again, like playing on that sort of Brechtian unreality, but it's still like AstroTurf. And there's these large, like green, you know, prongs sticking up from the ground. Yeah. (laughs) And if we're going to talk about Beetlejuice's setting, a lot of Burton hallmarks, the juxtaposition of, you know, these richly over, over, over saturated colors at every turn with a lot of the dark hues he employs. Yeah. Like the relatively drab nature of the house, at least, you know, especially before the, the Dietzes move in. Yeah. All that stuff is very, very interesting and very proto Burton. It still feels like he's finding his, style that he would solid he would calcify it in scissor hands but uh, this feels very much like a it, it's an interesting again rosetta stone for both his live action and his stop motion approach well and it's funny too because if you bring up you know we talked earlier about frankenweenie as you know beginning with burton playing around in a diorama within a diorama in uh-huh. a sense Beetlejuice kicks off the exact same way and sets that exact same tone because not only do you have this, you know, like this initial ironic trip through an everyday nondescript American town all the way up to the house on the hill, but then you end the entire thing with a spider crawling over the house on the hill and the reveal it's a diorama. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I just very... realized this movie begins the same way Hereditary does. Yes. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 
That's really a, why didn't you say that? That's You're welcome. So upsetting. <laughs> hail, hail payment, everybody. Hail, hail payment. payment. But yeah, I. But no, it, it's very interesting because then you know, in one of Burton's earliest movies, you see him firmly cementing his entire interest in you know, like liter in this case, literally sticking people into these dioramas and seeing what happens to them. Yeah, I mean, it, it firmly it it you know lays playing the metaphor that he loves to you. You know, similar to Wes Anderson, put his characters in these dollhouses in a very literal sense. Um, so it's nice to sort of get that nice that that signpost, that clean yeah. indicator that this is where we're going to be playing. I, I, as you're saying that too, I'm realizing that at least in the case of these four films, there are there are other exceptions I can think of to this, like Mars Attacks and uh, Sweeney Todd. But like in the case of these, when we go back to talking about violence and we talk about this dollhouse quality. Like, there is very much a sense that when something violent happens to these characters, they are either not human or they have some very specific uh, uh, aspect of unreality, whether they're covered and or a whether... means of reconstruction. Yes, and a means of reconstruction. Like, it's never like Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin's character as humans are, you know, bisected or something. Like, it, it mm. is very much that we either cut away and they've, you know, uh, turned their jaw inside out or something like, and so I think that is also really important in the case of all of these about why in the end we can call them family films. Yeah. There's always a safety line. There's always a way to be like, Oh, well, yes, Sally got pulled apart, but she can stitch herself back together. Yeah, There's, there's very few times where Burton in his career, like really crosses that line. I mean, Sweeney Todd is the Ur example here. Sleepy right. Hollow, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But that's also why the ending of Frankenweenie worked for me, because I feel like there's always going to be a way for Sparky to come back to life. Yeah, and and there's like kind of again, like a naivete, certainly, but also an optimism in that. Yeah. He wants like it's his world. He gets he gets to keep his characters alive if he wants to, damn it. <laughs> That's the thing. He's always like, for as much as he's interested in like disassembly of bodies, mm. he is a very benevolent god over these worlds. I think you could say ultimately. Yeah, well, because he love he's so in love with these characters. Like he, that's why even in Beetlejuice, like the Dietzes, they come out the other side, being a part of the family. Basically, yeah. you know. Yeah, the cynicism is even still like, I, it's not light by any stretch of the imagination, and it's still very blunt. But like. Mm -hmm. You know, you compare it to some of the other directors of this time right. of, you know, post Reagan, like he he uh, lets these characters off pretty easily. Yeah. It's never about <laughs> revenge. It's kind of about teaching a lesson sure. almost. It's just about converting them to your side. Yeah, really. yeah. Like it's not like it's, it's not necessarily <laughs> fuck these yuppies, but it's like. Well, in, and in all of these movies, you see very much this motif <laughs> yeah. of like walking up to the brink and then dialing it back. You right. Know? Yeah. And again, like you've mentioned Sweeney Todd as an exception. But that's also why it feels like one of his most severe motion pictures. Like it is, mm. it is the bloodiest and like most nihilistic. I think. Oh, definitely. But before we move on from sight, we have the lasting image. So, if one of you would like to jump in with your favorite single shot from mm. any of today's films, except for Nightmare Before Christmas, because it's directed by Henry Selleck. Correct. Um, and if I if that were, that were included, I would probably actually have the image of Skellington on the Hill. But um, I'm gonna have to go with Beetlejuice, and I think I have to go with something that I think is the quintessential image of Tim Burton's tone, which is the final shot of Beetlejuice. Uh, Winona Ryder just floating in the air, 
you know, in all of her goth glory, dancing to Harry, Harry Belafonte with the with Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin and that that um, you know the football team and everything. It's just just this lovely mixture of the grotesquerie of ghosts and like deformed bodies with the joy of just dancing to a lovely song. You know, this, there's just this this much a reality that um, is infused in it. That makes it feel strange and weird, but it's not something you want to run away from. It's it's finding these ghouls and showing these ghouls in a way. I keep, I feel like Adam Driver right now, ghouls. <laughs> um, but uh, just framing them in a way that is accessible, optimistic, inclusive, pluralistic. Um, he wants to invite you into this world of the dead and show that it's not that bad. It's not that bad to be dead. It can be sometimes really fun. And that, to me, is sort of the quintessential Tim Burton ethos. And that image makes it really plain. Well, there's two I wanted to mention, because one never came up, and I think it's fascinating in the realm of stop motion, is there is a first-person shot in uh, in Frankenweenie, which I found really unusual, because it's the only shot in the film like that. Now, I don't necessarily think that's representative of Burton or anything, but I did find, as long as we're talking about shots, I can't figure out any other way mm. to talk yeah. about that. Sure, sure. No, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Because uh, I, I haven't really given, because it's from Sparky's point of view, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I've never really thought about the mechanics of depicting a stop motion world from character point of view. That's right. What I wonder. <laughs> and also you're looking at it through, through dead eyes too, yes. which adds another layer on top of it. Huh. It's cool. Yeah. I have to go back. And um, but the the other one is I'm, I'm trying to think of exactly where the shot starts and begins, so I don't become one of those assholes who does shots as opposed to shot. But it's the it's a moment I referred to earlier, and it's uh, or I guess it's something we've collectively referred to, and mm-hmm. it's when um, the different classmates realize that they can resurrect uh, people, and so we get the cutting between the different houses, and then finally. I guess the shot I want to talk about the zoom out wide shot of all of the houses and the, the antennas that they're using all the kites getting electrocuted yes. in unison. Yes. And and I think that's just a, it's a, a really nice sense of, um, well, one, it, it's a, it's a nice sense of uniformity, which is, you know, certainly something Burton would like, but also just as, a a communal thing about this character about this director who usually does stories about outsiders and people who can't find connection i think it's such a fascinating moment that even as it's used as you know kind of a prelude to a final climax of uh chaos it's it's such an interesting kind of like euphoric moment and it's it's like one of the moments when the movie really seems to find its footing in terms of like at once being like this revival of an era of film that Burton has spent his whole career paying blatant homage to sure. <laughs> and kind of being its own fun thing. Yeah. And for me, I'm actually going to stick within Frank and Weenie as well, because I think the one image where Victor is trying to revive Sparky in the middle of the circle of cars Mm -hmm. is actually really really lovely because it's about as Burton-esque as like a Disney climax can be. And it it really nails that boy and his dog appeal in that moment to me. Yeah. Just all of them so much light that they're both somehow in shadow 
Mm. I think that's really pretty. Yeah, I love that. That was a gorgeous moment. And for our last category, we'd be remiss if we didn't jump into sound. And God, now I literally said the word sound and I'm hearing Oogie Boogie (laughs) falling apart again. (laughs) Like that's all. It's like the whole I tell you not to think of an elephant. All you can think of is an elephant. So that's fun. Yeah. But yeah. um, So once again, as was the case last week and has been the case most episodes of the show, All of the scores we're talking about are by Danny Elfman. And I want to jump right into Beetlejuice, because if you had Elfman like having his big coming out party with the sound of Pee-wee's big adventure, Beetlejuice opens. And as soon as like, no, we don't even get through the Geffen Company Chiron without going from that those triumphant bells to the Harry Belafonte sample is like this weird key change. And then into the exact kind of bouncing, jumping melody that is pure Elfman. Yeah. Well, because, this, again, this is early Elfman. And much like with Pee Wee, he's still very much in Oingo Boingo mode. And so it feels like this; these first few films especially, like, until I think he really finds his voice with Scissor Hands again. Um, it's still, he's still applying that herky-jerky, polka-infused, uh, you know, that sound to to apply to this manic energy of these early Burton movies and Beetlejuice's theme is absolutely perfect for that. Like it feels like it, it could be like a, a lost Oingo Boingo cut. If you th- threw some lyrics on top of it, you know? Well, and especially just those, those guttural, like you said, those polka sounds, cause those deep brass tones are something Elfman's going to revisit over and over and over again through his whole career. And especially their juxtaposition with like bells and glockenspiel and things like that. But there's something about the Beetlejuice tone that just it it does what the best pieces of scoring do before a single word of dialogue has been uttered. You have a feel on what this movie is and what it's getting at mm-hmm. right out of the gate. Right, I, I think too that it's um, that was like relatively a surprising piece of music because I think uh, you know when you think of that. That sound that we're all collectively yeah. like all of us are just sort of like put like do, 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 do. working invisible <laughs> accordions right now it. yeah yeah but like actually hearing it and re- being reminded of it you're realizing oh this is a lot more complex piece of music than I remembered you know mm-hmm. you know that the the syncopation of the of the brass and the uh, what I thought was tubas who knows what I could be but and then the the filigree, filigrees of like the strings and stuff like it, it is a piece of music that I realized was a lot more careful than kind of the elephantine quality that I yeah. associated with <laughs> there's kind of a carnivalesque that also aids in the carnivalesque nature of everything yeah. it, was, it always feels like a dark carnival when you go to like an Oingo Boingo concert or like <laughs> Like like album. a juggalo dark carnival. Uh, like... Yes, the darkest of carnivals. <laughs> We're all family here. <laughs> now I just want to t- the to live and die in L.A. soundtrack to be applied to yeah. Beetlejuice. <laughs> yeah, get no. some Tangerine Dreams in there. God, I and one thing I really love about the sound of Beetlejuice at large is that yeah, Clint, I think you hit, hit the nail on the head with the carnival esque aspect, and I mean they. I mean, when Beetlejuice emerges at full human dimension at the end of the movie, he's literally promising a car- he's wearing a carousel on his head and yeah. inviting them to a hell circus or whatever. Right. And I think in general, though, like the score 
it does a really good job of creating that light dark just juxtaposition we've been talking about this whole episode especially with a lot of the shrieking strings because that's the thing mm. some of the scoring especially when they're like dragged down into Beetlejuice's graveyard it, it it's very horror score which yeah. is kind of interesting because sure. there's a bounce to some of it but some of this is a straight up horror movie composition well and sometimes the the horrifying thing about Elfman's more manic compositions is that that energy is so fast and frenetic that sometimes it's hard to keep up and there is a horror in that as well where it's sort of like this is going yeah. too fast this ride this ride is going too fast I can't stop it stomach churning yeah, yeah a little bit yeah and I actually think he plays with he plays with some of those same sounds in Frankenweenie then as well because there's something there's definitely something carnivalesque to his version of a monster movie in that as well. And that one, more than anything, what I thought was kind of fun was Elfman getting to play around with, like, a really traditional, like, 40s, 50s, grandiose-type horror score. Because it feels more of a piece with those than with some of his own sounds. Yeah, true, true. Yeah, Yeah, I think there is something very classical about that score, but there's even... But I think it's interesting the way... I'm particularly thinking of the vampire cat sequence. Like, that is something... Where I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it sounded like, but there's it's a lot more harsh sounds to it, and that's just as much the sound design. Which, like, as much as we're talking about how fun those uh, animals that are transformed, like the actual sound design is is pretty uh, creepy and and uh, off putting. So I I think that again again I guess we're just talking about like dark juxtapositions, but uh, I think that. There's there's a really canny understanding of how to play those sounds against each other, right? And even with you know, like we said, this is the most recent of the movies we're talking about, and it feels like Danny Elfman as a as a composer has really matured in very interesting ways over the course of his career. And so this is like later Elfman in the same way that it's later Burton, whereas like Burton has sort of matured in you know other ways, but <laughs> I suppose that's a kind way to put it. Um, but Elfman like feels I feel like he has a greater understanding of the of of the you know the way he can use his own sort of unique sound in more subtle ways. He he has a greater understanding of how he can dial it in and and make it go full blast. And yeah, like there's a more restrained feel to Frank and Weenie's score, um, but I think that lends more to the complexity and the sweetness of of this boy and his dog story, like we've been saying. Yeah, and in and in terms of, you know, enmeshing those tones, that's a good segue over to Corpse Bride then, which has some original compositions, and I feel bad saying this because a couple weeks ago when we were discussing Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I talked about how unmemorable the Oompa Loompa songs were in that, and in that same way, you know, the Corpse Bride songs, I enjoyed a few of them as they were going by, and sure. Michael, as you mentioned, there's a couple of like really fun pieces of lyricism happening there. Mm-hmm. But they're also kind of eminently forgettable. I mean, it feels, again, more like they're trying to cash in on Nightmare Before Christmas. They're like, well, Nightmare had songs, too. So Corpse Bride should also have songs. And so I like by, you know, sometimes like according to plan is is interesting in a fun little way. But like, yeah, I, I, according to like, plan was the highlight for me. Yeah. Too. But like the rest of them just kind of blend into the background. I don't remember a, a, anything about them. Yeah, there. I feel like there would be almost like pricks of uh, of almost ca- character and like certain things. I'm going to go back to the bar scene again. The bar scene apparently is the, the only bar scene. the only scene I'm talking about. But like that had a little bit of like 
you know, almost a little bit of a, a bayou rhythm at times. Like, oh, a, yeah. there's just a, a certain sense of uh, a certain sense of character that's there. That's otherwise like, I, you know, I didn't mention this earlier, so I want to mention it now. It's really weird to think of Coco in relation to Corpse Bride. Yeah, yeah, because they're both movies kind of about entering the land of the dead and yeah, yeah that kind of thing. Well, and there's also like the Book of Life, right? Yes. The, the the Channing Tatum thing, yeah. <laughs> the Channing Tatum, Tatum thing. <laughs> I Why did I go to that name first? <laughs> of all the things. I mean, he voices the main character, right? <laughs> But no, I, yeah. I, I think I think there's a really interesting point there because you know in the case of in the case of Corpse Bride especially like the one piece of melody that really stands out to me is like the bride's piano refrain. Mm, yeah. That's like that's like the one really memorable piece that kind of stuck with me for a couple days after I watched the film. But you don't get that with a lot of the songs because you know like the because gr- you know like the great the great musicals they're always rooted in character, right? Mm-hmm. They're always, you know, like there is an, there is an under underlying resonance that makes you care about why this person is singing about what they're singing about. And I don't always get that out of corpse bride. Yeah. Like I, I, I just, I can't remember outside of according to plan a whole lot to even talk about with corpse bride. It's just there. <laughs> and especially when you juxtapose that with the movie, it's liberally <laughs> biting from in this respect, oh. nightmare before Christmas, there's no comparison. And granted, that's a really mean contest to put Corpse Bride up against like one of Disney's most memorable movie musicals, or I'm sorry, Touchstone Pictures' most memorable movie <laughs> musicals. Yeah. yeah, I just, you know, to borrow our modern parlance, the 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 musical segments of uh, Nightmare Before Christmas just slap. Bangs hard in the whip. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is Halloween. It's a collection Confirm of Confirmed banger. I, I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> Just, if you, you can't see this audience, but Michael Snydell is currently sinking hard into the couch that we're all sitting on, hoping that one day he'll just disappear and we won't see him again. <laughs> uh, but no, just there is a majesty. I mean, it feels like the apotheosis of a lot of... Um, like, melding Danny Elfman's natural predilection towards songwriting... For the first for the first time in a motion picture, really, since he started doing scores for Danny Burton, Danny Burton, Tim Burton, it's been a long day. Um, but just yeah, and just the fact that Elfman himself lends the vo- the vo- the vocals for uh, Jack Skellington uh, for the song segments, at least, um, it just feels su- like such a a singular uh, just score, and it's just I don't know, it's all just so great. I, I can't I can't fault any of the songs. In well, the and Elfman's song. direct involvement gives yeah. it a really interesting sense of alternate authorship, even yeah. beyond what we've talked about with like Burton and Selleck's involvement. Mm-hmm. You know, like Elf like Elfman's done a lot of great scoring work with Burton and elsewhere, but this is one of the times where it feels like he's like as it, integral a part. It of feels this like filmmaking his as in a way else. that yeah, his other stuff doesn't. Yeah. I think the other thing too is that you know as much as we we've spoken well obviously I guess Corpse Bride is the only one with uh, lyrics but like it, in terms of nightmare like there's just a sense that you know the the vocals aren't aren't, aren't just there it doesn't feel like they're it's telling the box. story it's, yeah. yeah like this is this is a musical in the classic sense and it's it wants to be seen that way and it's it's not a, a secondary aspect yeah it doesn't run from it at all to stop motion yeah or, or anything like that well and and if we were going to talk about like corpse bride as like 
and the way in the mu- which the music reflects character. Nightmare Before Christmas gives you everything about people from the songs. I mean, yeah. even Oogie Boogie's song, like it's kind of like a grotesque take on Cab Calloway that tells you everything you need to know about the villain in like yeah. three minutes flat. Yeah, and like. All of Jack's ballads. I mean, most of the emotional resonance of this movie comes from Jack and or Sally singing. Yeah. Yes. And also just throwing us in with This is Halloween. And we, like, in three minutes, we know everything we need to know about this crazy world based on an entire holiday. An entire ecosystem is thrown at us. And we instantly know everything there is to know. And it's just so elegant and like it's not opaque at all. Like it you just get it. And it's just so much fun to what it throws you in right from the get-go and it doesn't really stop. It's so funny how much we're praising. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But it's so good. I mean, we could we can't run from it. There was some internal discussion when we were putting this season of filmography together about whether or not to include it. And I eventually landed on the side of you can't not mention it. Because honestly, if I did this episode and we tried to not talk about it the entire time, we couldn't. Yeah, we would have to skirt around it in really awkward ways. And it's better to just sort of lean into it. But I actually think on that note, that's where we can bring... Season four of filmography to its close. Mm. I want to thank both of you for joining me this week for our go home episode. I want to thank all of you listening at home or wherever it is that you are for tuning in all season long and for continuing to follow along with us here at filmography. I want to thank Kat Blackard and Michael Rothman for all of the continued support at consequence podcast network. You can stay tuned to our Facebook page slash filmography podcast for all major announcements about upcoming programming, upcoming seasons. You can again, leave us a review on Spotify on Apple podcasts or wherever else you procure your fine podcast content. I can actually give a tease and an actual commercial because in May we'll be back with our latest mini sode. We'll be doing another one-off movie and that'll be announced in the coming weeks on the Facebook page. I can tell the audience that our fifth full season will return in July. We're keeping things quarterly, but we will be back in July with four weeks on Quentin Tarantino. So all of you can look forward to that when summer rolls around as we will have a bunch of like not at all difficult conversations about that. (laughs) That remarkably uncontroversial filmmaker. Yeah. As always, we are not the only CPN show you can enjoy. You can and should also check out This Must Be the Gig, Kyle Meredith with The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, and Halloweenies, which is currently in its Freddy Krueger season. You can find me on Twitter at Mayer, mostly just talking about wrestling and shilling my own work. <laughs> um, you can also find all of my stuff at Consequence of Sound. Where can the goodly people of the internet find you two? You can find me on Twitter at, at Snydell, and every week I am on the Film Stage Show. Um, I'm not exactly sure when this is going up, but by the time it goes up, we'll have an episode about High Life. And we'll have an episode about uh, Avengers Endgame, because we're a podcast on the internet, and we have to talk about that. And I'm not bitter about it at all. Uh, I'm also on Letterboxd uh, at Michael Snydell. Uh, You can follow me, argue with me. Uh, Yeah, that's about it. 
Um, I'm on Twitter at Clint Worthing. Um, you can also find some of my film and TV coverage at Consequence of Sound. I also run the website The Spool, where you can find other film and TV coverage. Um, and also, I run two podcasts there. There's the weekly interview podcast called More of a Comment, really, because I'm a cheeky little git. And uh, the monthly TV podcast, Hall of Faces, that we do, uh, just talking about a different TV show every month. Um, and also, I co-host Nathan Rabin's Happy Cast over at NathanRabin.com. And I just do a million other things. Just go to my Twitter. I shill all of it. Filmography is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcasts at consequenceofsound.net. This show is recorded, produced, and engineered in Chicago, Illinois by me, Dominic Suzanne Mayer. And we will see you all next month. Consequence Podcast Network.